0: Southern Bramble would like to thank its top-tier Patreon sponsors for sponsoring this episode. A very special thank you to William, C. Shaw, Panther, and Josie the Mountain Troll. Thank you all so much.
1: Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light.
0: And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a very special guest with us. Everybody, please welcome Christine Cunningham Ashworth, author of The Path Taken. Hi, Christine. How are you today?
2: Hey, Austin. I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you so much. And I wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for being here because uh, we're gonna be talking about a really exciting piece of work, um, something that I think we're going to be talking about Scott Cunningham today, obviously, if 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 nobody had figured that out. But I think, um, before we before we get too too far into it, you know, the first real, I say, quote, unquote, real magical book that I ever got and got my hands on was a complete. A uh, book of incense oils and brews, and I remember sitting at this woman's house. She was the stepmother of one of my friends, and he, you know that his parents were divorced, and we were over at his father's place for the weekend. That was my my first experience ever meeting him, and you know I had, um, had been doing uh, a lot of divination and magical work and uh, like that through the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to have been probably about ten years old 11 years old maybe and um she pulled out this book and i didn't know what it was for for years after reading it that night i like got my hands on it and i would i was like enthralled reading it back and forth and it wasn't until Um, I was probably like 13, maybe 14, that I was able to start going to more metaphysical and occult shops and finally found this book again with all these wonderful drawings and all these formulas. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is the book. And um, so I just wanted to like take a moment and uh, also say thank you so much for writing this because I think this is a important piece of work that... Um, highlighting somebody who is very influential that especially in today's current climate may be potentially overlooked um, unfairly Um, and i just wanted to highlight the the importance of this work so thank you again for being here
1: thank you so before we dive deep into the book, Christine, I want um, our audience and our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Tell us about maybe your career path. uh, Some of the, I know you're an author as well, and I'd like Mm -hmm. you to just introduce yourself and and just tell us and our audience a little bit about you.
2: Okay. Well, my career path has been twisty as many people's are. Um, I started out as a teenager in in a ballet company and um, met the love of my life there. And we moved up to L.A. in 1980 and uh, there was no ballet company up here. So I did odd jobs. I got uh, I did some background work on soap operas and was in square pegs. His background for a while with Sarah Jessica Parker, which <laughs> my big claim to fame. Um, and uh,
1: I love SJP.
2: <laughs> I know, right. She's awesome. I um, and in 85, I decided my husband's an actor. Um, he's still an actor. He will always be an actor. And in 85, I decided I needed a steady job. I wanted to have a house. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have health insurance. Um, so I found a corporate job. I basically said, I need a job. And a friend of mine said, Oh, well, when we get back to LA, I've got a, I've got a job for you. And I got a corporate job, which was great. Um, and from there, I wrote here and there, um, but it wasn't until my corporate job moved from Santa Monica and I was already traveling from the San Fernando Valley down to Santa Monica every morning and every night, which was a long not long distance wise but long traffic wise oh, and then they moved even further south to El segundo and i was just like no i can't do that so i got another job with a dot com and ended up getting laid off from that and decided okay now i'm going to start writing i have time i'm going to start writing yeah. and um i wrote i joined romance writers of america in 2002 and started writing my romances and wrote six or seven within five or six years, um, didn't edit them, which, Ooh, that's important. You need to edit work, <laughs> but I did the things, you know, I wrote them, I write fairly clean. So it, you know, spell check seemed to, to work and, um, sent them out. Always got rejections, polite rejections usually, but rejections. <clears throat> and then my mother died in 2007 and I realized she was never going to hold one of my books. And, that's when I really got serious and started writing. <clears throat> for, um, uh, I got into writing paranormal romance because you could make things up. <laughs> it was a lot easier to just make things up than, than having to be spot on accurate with everything that you're writing, and um, managed to get that sold, and that came out in 2011, and. The second book came in out in 2012 but the company didn't buy my third book so Mm. i ended up um publishing that in 2016 um through a different publishing company now all the rights are back with me and i did other writing in between there and then 2019 i was in real burnout and um i put together a nonfiction book uh called where the pearls and other bits of wisdom and that got me really working thinking you know how to write nonfiction and
1: oh, yeah. then uh
2: 2018 um i was at a pagan gathering and did a talk about scott and they said um well you're gonna write a book about him right i'm like "Ah." Uh, Hadn't planned to.
0: <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> Everyone beware um, of those pagan conferences.
2: <laughs> right. So, yeah, basically, um, I was told that in more ways than one that I had to write that book. And so I did.
1: And we probably should have started at the very beginning with this. Scott is your brother, um, your older brother. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so out of all the people in the world who had the opportunity to know him and share so many of y'all's experiences as a family, mm-hmm. who better <laughs> truly right. than to share your experience and memories. Tell us about your book, Scott Cunningham, The Path Taken. I love the title. I think that makes so much sense. I think so many of us, even we think about this kind of as a crooked path. And um, I want you to tell us a little bit more about your experience of writing about your family and more exper- more specifically, writing about your brother so many years later
2: yeah yeah when i decided i was actually going to write this book mm-hmm. i was having a hard time my My dad died in 2017 almost 10 years to the day that my mother died which was interesting and so when i started writing the book i sat down and i and i i didn't know how to get into it so i i typed the word preface <laughs> you know very fancy <laughs> and uh, I said okay so this is me explaining to me why I'm writing this book and the first words I put down were and they're still in the preface they're not the very first words of the preface but they're still in there uh, they were if I had known my older brother Scott would be so prolific so polarizing and so something else I don't remember right off i I would have kept notes. I would have had a cassette deck tape recorder going when we were talking. I would have, you know, kept all our letters. I would have, but I didn't, I didn't do any of those things. So here we are. All I have is my memories. That's it. And, and that once I wrote, I think it was like 350 words total. I saved it, pushed away from my desk and went and done, did something else. Because it was um, it was too much, and that's the way it went for about four years. I would sit down. I I title, I get to the top of the page, and I title it. Okay, um, his wallet. Now I found his wallet um, when we were packing up my dad's house, and it was in my dad's desk drawer, and everything was still in it, and I saw that. And I just, I just put it in, in a box and I just put stuff on top of it. And I, I, I didn't look at it. I didn't, I couldn't, I just, I couldn't. And then, um, a year or so later, you know, the boxes were still in the house, still hadn't been unpacked and still just, you know, my husband said, uh, honey, could you like, go through these and just decide what you want to keep, what you want to toss and, you know, just, so we can get them out of the hallway (laughs) it's like oh okay i guess i can do that and um i got to the bottom of this box and i found his wallet and right then i sat down and i i titled the top of the page i put his wallet and then i wrote everything about finding his wallet and um you know the memories it brought back and 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 so that's what I did for every single section in the book. Now, when when I first wrote it, I didn't have it broken down into chapters. It was just those subheadings. And uh, and I have no idea how many, when there were like 30, 35, something like that. Um, but that was the only way I could do it. I couldn't just sit down and bang it out in six weeks. It, it was It would have been impossible. I would have been a wreck. So, yeah. that's how
1: it went it was so moving to have the opportunity to read your book about someone scott has had such a impact on my my practice for years i remember finding his book wicca for a solitary practitioner when i must have been like 13 years old maybe maybe 14 and it was one of those books that was so meaningful because it spoke to me on an individual level, and I was coming from a, a very broken place of, of um, kind of Christian evangelism that made me feel lesser than, that made me feel completely like I had no sovereignty and my my fate was doomed no matter what choice that I made. And to find someone who spoke to me and made me feel that my feelings m- mattered that my, my spirituality mattered, that my choices in my spiritually mattered. And I had not just options, but I had opportunities that really spo- it spoke to me on such a soul level. And I could uh, we've spoken about this cover before because I still remember the original cover with the woman with the short feathered hair, she's holding the incense and she's in a garden in it. And that image is burned in my mind. And I I ha- it's. I still think about it, even though the cover is totally new today. I was looking it up. Mm-hmm. It's got a totally different cover. I still think of the original. And I think I've had three copies of Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs. I've given away two copies. Um, one was taken. Well, no, I have one. I gave one away. And when I was younger, my mom took the other one away from me because <laughs> <laughs> I was too young to be dealing with this kind of stuff, Marshall. And when I read the chapter about the wallet, I thrust directly into your momentary present experience as you were opening it, as you were holding it in your hands. These chapters felt like I got to experience you and your experience firsthand. And it was so meaningful because I felt closer to the person who I already has had so much of an impact on, on my spirituality over the years. Um, so I, I, I loved that chapter and I felt like it was so different. I mean, I've seen other, uh, biographies about Scott, about talking about his work and, and areas, but this was very, very different. This felt personal, and it felt like we got a window into seeing you and your experience, your memory, and your family so much more than what I could get from probably a biography, so um, I loved that chapter, and thank you for writing it.
0: Oh, thank you. The relationship, I think, um, between siblings, I think that's, that's what's really important here to highlight or maybe maybe it's not maybe it's just something i'm thinking about but like it's not you know it's so different when a parent writes it it's so different when um uh, a child writes it about their parent um but there's somewhat of potentially not always not in every case there's an intimacy or an understanding um when we we are dealing with siblings because there's some relatableness there, you know, um, it's not your parent, it's not your child, uh, that, and obviously those relationships bring those different flavors, but I think that's, that's very interesting. And uh, Marshall, I also can relate because I've probably, I've probably had like three or four copies of both Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs and, um, uh, incense oils and brews that I've like given away or loaned out and never got back, which is is fine. <laughs> I think they might be in better homes, but they it, it seems to be a common thing with with Scott's books. I think because maybe they're so able to reach to people in such a powerful way that some people feel that they need to keep them for themselves. And I I um I don't encourage book theft, but I encourage. Uh, those who have had that happen to maybe uh, be more understanding. Cause it seems like a common theme amongst so many people and you might have to just yeah. go out and get yourself another one.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't loan books out anymore. <laughs> unless I, unless I understand that they're not, when I, when I understand they're not coming back, I just, I just gift. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and in the early days, uh, my dad had this. uh bookcase that he made it was huge it was very tall very wide had lots of shelves and it had all of scott's copies of you know someone in, in different languages and because he he'd get a box of books every time it came a book came out and uh he my dad had a, a sheet of heavy plastic over it to keep the books clean and after scott died every now and then i go in there and Say, like, Dad, can I have some Scotts books? And he goes, Yeah, sure, take them, you know. And then I just pass them out to friends that asked that knew that asked. It was, I had, you know, it's one of those things that they'd be on my shelf. And if I was, if someone came over and said, Oh, oh, you know, I've been meaning to get that book, and I just say, Here, it's for you. So um, yeah, I get the whole passing books around it.
1: Um, both. Magical Herbalism and Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs are listed in the bibliography of my book, Cunning Words, because both of them influenced multiple aspects of my book that it just, it shaped so much of 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 the spellcraft and the things that I built within some of my stories. I just identified so much with them. So um, it's just, it, it feels so wonderful to be even closer to to you and to to Scott's story so I'm really excited and when you talk about siblings Austin the entire time that I was reading your book I kept thinking about my little sister she's three years younger than me and um, I was her gay older brother I still remember being in our like I was a young teenager in the playroom and I was playing with her hair as we usually did sitting in front of the TV (laughs) And she stopped and she goes, Marshall, I want to ask you a question. And and I said, well, I, I already knew where this was going. She was so intuitive. She is so intuitive. And she goes, she just goes, are you? And I just said, yes, I am. And she goes, okay. And she says, I love you. And she gave me a hug. And it was, it was so simple between the two of us, my sister and yeah. I. And Years later, she came out as queer as well, so that was kind of a funny thing. <laughs> but I just, I couldn't help but see so many parallels and and feel just so close to your story when it the way that it it made me feel about me and my sister. And I I, I sent her a text the other night just because I was thinking about her. Um, but I wanted to tell you that because. Uh, that sibling relationship, as you said, Austin, is is so important and it's so meaningful and it's so individualized. It's so, dif- it is, it's so individualized. So I want to ask you, in your book, each chapter is followed up by someone's testino- testimony about the effects Scott had on their life. Can you share what it's like reading about your br- brother's legacy through their eyes? And can you tell us about new things you learned you maybe didn't know before?
2: Well, it was wonderful, of course. And um, I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, Scott, Scott's books were my gateway drug. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were my way in. Um, they were my first books. And, and, and I, that always makes me feel good. It's hard to put into words uh, how... You're never a celebrity in your own family, you know? <laughs> You, you just aren't. Um, Prince William is not Prince William when he's changing nappies, you know, he, he's, he's <laughs> a dad. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when y- y- you have this viewpoint of someone that you've known all your life, and then you start seeing them through other people's eyes, mm-hmm. it's completely different. It's, it's because he impact he doesn't impact anybody everybody the same way everyone's slightly differently impacted and it was just um it was a joy it was an absolute joy to read and you were talking about the numerology a little bit earlier um mm-hmm. uh, austin uh when i got that back from nancy hendrickson i cried because that was scott to and she'd never met him you know she 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 never met him she was just going off his numerology and it it made me realize how powerful some of the stuff is that we don't think about necessarily the uh, lord knows i haven't had time to study it um it was um i was really grateful that everybody i asked would you consider contributing to this book every single person said yes so i was i was very grateful and and um i probably could have asked a dozen more <laughs> and and would have gotten a dozen more
1: was there anything maybe new you learned
2: oh um that he really did speak to everyone um there were no barriers he wasn't gatekeeping um he didn't care what you looked like what you sounded like what your abilities were you know the magic was there for you if you chose to use it and that more than anything because the words inclusive weren't a thing Mm in the 80s you know it it wasn't people didn't talk that way they didn't think that way and the fact that he did he was so far ahead of his time in that respect. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of eye-opening, really, um, to me that, that he spoke to so many diverse people and spoke direct, like you said, uh, Marshall, directly to them. Um, it, was, it was just like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's my big brother. <laughs> He did
0: that. That's amazing. There are so many people, queer folks, who share what Scott means to them, um, and you write about that in their book, in your book. Uh, James Devine writes that um, his coven honors Scott as a queer ancestor and an ancestor of the craft as well. In your research, did you notice the common thread of queerness? Um, it, what is it? Do you think that draws so many of us to the craft as it did Scott?
2: Oh, um, f- uh, for one thing, I did very little research because <laughs> it, it was it was mostly up in yeah. here, and it was mostly digging out memories, um,
1: uh, internal filing cabinets. <laughs> exactly.
2: I like that. I like that. Um, and it's just not not just queer people. I would think. It he it was an empowering for anyone who felt disempowered, no matter who you were, that that he gave you the tools for your own empowerment, and and that's what draws people to magic to begin with. I believe um, that and wanting to get nearer to to spirit, to to Mother Earth, to um, to nature, to as an antidote to all the technology that we have today. And as an antidote to all of the ugliness that is so open now that we have today.
1: I know that was definitely one of the biggest reasons why I found witchcraft in the first place. I felt disempowered. I was young. I didn't understand my own queerness yet. I knew I was different. Everyone else seemed to know I was different. I just didn't know how yet. Um, I felt very empowered by finding a religion well I, I don't personally identify as Wiccan this day. when I discovered witchcraft, Wicca and witchcraft were synonymous, there was quite a time period where that was just one and the same because that's what was being published, that's what the access to information I had and there was the spirituality being presented to me that had just so much openness and acceptance. It was the first time I'd ever heard of of someone using goddess worship or or veneration. And it was the first time that I felt like this feels so much closer to me, my body, Mother Earth, than it did with a celestial being that I couldn't see in the sky that told me I was gonna go to hell. Like it was, this is just my experience, of course. Um, I have noticed over the years how many LGBTQIA plus people have been drawn to the craft in some way, shape, or form, whether that be uh, spirituality or because they feel deeply disempowered and need some sort of empowerment, whether that's desperation or whether that's just luckily kind of wandering onto the path. I think a lot about the way we built this podcast, specifically as a queer witch podcast, because um, we wanted to make sure that that queer voice was really really resonating with the things we had to say the subject matters we talked about we talk a lot about how which we believe witchcraft is and it is in itself inherently queer not necessarily gay but queer is in like on the edges weird odd not of the norm and it's something that i think that so many of us innately felt and we connected with the craft on that level because um not to speak cliche, but there's just so something so magical about it. and yeah. And we love that. And I loved reading the way that your your book was set up, where I got to hear snippets from you about your family, things that had nothing to do with the craft or magic, but I got to know your family. And then it would cut to an experience that someone is talking about, um whether that be about a, a book that they had from him when it came to crystals, gems, and stones, or uh, incense, herbs, and brews, um, or or um, the uh, Book of Shadows. Like, and so many of the people who contributed were queer people. And I noticed that string, and it was one of those things where I don't think it was on purpose. I just think that's how it naturally happened. And uh, I love that there was such a space for that in your book. And it wasn't It wasn't that it was done necessarily on purpose it's just how it happened and it it meant so much to kind of feel like the compendium of how this was compiled was just so beautifully done
2: yeah well i was at um the international divination event in oh my god this was just last year in may of last year and um Matt Oren, who wrote the foreword, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, he brought one of his partners along, which is Storm Fairy Wolf. and Storm had had uh, a a couple paragraphs about Scott in one of his books as a queer ancestor, and Llewellyn said, mm, "Let's not let's not put that in," um, because they had this agreement with my dad. 30 years ago mm-hmm. um, to not talk about scott's sexuality which is is fine and and i really appreciate llewellyn honoring that agreement with my father um, but when i heard storm's story i said you know i want that i want that in my book would you be willing? And he goes, "Yes, and I will expand it because <laughs> right now it's just a couple short paragraphs." So that was really exciting. Um, and then at the same conference, I was sitting down with at breakfast with James Devine, and he was talking about Scott, and and his it was the the passion in his voice and the emotion. I said, "I need you to write me something." He goes, "I'm not a writer." I said, "I don't care." I need you to write me something and and then he did i mean that it took a little bit of pushing um but he got me something and then um after the book sold to judica illis she said do you mind if i reach out to a couple other people i said no no please please and um, so that's how amy blackthorne got in that's how storm um nicholas pearson walsh got in uh, and that's also how Rose Rose St- Stephanie Rosebird. Stephanie Rosebird, Yes, Got thank it. you. Of course. And um, when I read her piece, it was like, oh, you know, I because she talked about really wanting, had hoped that Scott would have written something about the African diaspora, and of for the which the witch community. I was like, you know what? If he was still alive, I bet he would have gone down that path. Um. Someone reached out to me from San Diego recently that he he had just graduated high school and Scott was like eight, eight or nine years older than he was. And they were hanging out at one of their high priestesses' houses. And and he said that um he and Scott had talked briefly about putting together a book on Mesopotamian witchcraft, which I mean would have been awesome. Wow. You know, so that it's so I know I've diverged away from the the, what we were originally talking about but um it's uh yeah uh the way the way the book came together I had all these pieces from all these people and I didn't know what to do with them (laughs) to be completely honest so I had my book and then I had all these pieces at the end and I didn't want it that way but I didn't know how to to, you know and mesh break, mesh it in write it down yeah. in and um the copy editor at Wiser. she is brilliant she needs a raise. <laughs> <laughs> i hope she's around to do all my books um she's the one that took all my disparate chapters and put them under one heading and you know broke it down into 12 chapters instead of 30 or whatever and she put the Uh, people's contributions in where they went and it was it all just when it came back to me I I just I almost cried it was so pretty it was just um it was just perfect I couldn't have asked for a better copy editor at all it was it was brilliant
1: well I deeply appreciated the the way it was put together because I felt like as I said I got so many pieces And it felt like I was unraveling a puzzle as it was all kind of coming together. Um, Even the way that your memories and stories would jump in different times. So we got really, really close and intense memories that were then um, kind of separated by by more just sort of really happy family memories. So we, Mm -hmm. we kind of got to experience this instead of a perfect progression of time we got to experience the way that we actually have memories. Um, yeah. that's that's the way that I kind of read it. Um, yeah. Now this one really stood out to me, and and I was kind of excited because I felt again, like I connected to it so much. You describe it, Scott in your book as an observer. And mm-hmm. I love that you said that because you talked about yourself, you talked about your brother but you described Scott as so different because he was always an observer. And, and again, that's something that I felt like, I always felt a little bit different from some of the other kids around me growing up. I was more, yeah. I, I was I was watching everything, I was taking everything in and it would really, really shape my, my worldview. Um, and you also talk about his fascination for learning from plants to space, researching for his books. Can you tell us a little bit more about these memories?
2: Well, partially breaks down into the way we were as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason to veer away just for a second, sure. the reason why I there is so much of my family in the book is that I wanted people to understand where Scott came from, how he got to be who he is. And if I, I, the only way you can do that is by showing you the family life. Um because he did come, a very, come from a very loving, close-knit family. And not everybody gets to do that. Um, so, but we would have, we'd be sitting around dinner and one of us, you know, we were all readers. So somebody would use a big word in, in the wrong way or we'd pronounce it wrong because we'd only seen it written, we'd never heard it spoken. And my dad said, do you know what that means? I go, mm, maybe, <laughs> a, okay. Go to the go to the uh, encyclopedias. Go look it up, and you know that's when we you had that shelf full of encyclopedias, and it sat in a in a short bookcase between my bedroom and the boys' bedroom. And so we go to the encyclopedia, get the right one, and we come back and we read it out at dinner time. So it it, it was always a uh, learning was like inculcated into us from from a very young age, and and reading was paramount. And, and, um, there always, there's always more to learn. And, and, and it's, it's kind of like, um, if you're not learning, if you're not actively learning, you're kind of actively dying, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Your, your brain cells, if nothing else are actively dying. So it's, it's, um, it was something we just did. And um, it's when you have when you have to do the day job and you have to do so many, you raise the kids or do the grocery shopping or make the meals, learning gets pushed aside. And Scott never had that issue because he he lived alone for once Donald Craig was his roommate for six years. And once Donald moved out, Um, he lived alone he was able to live alone and when you live alone and you your writing is your learning is your income um you know you just you just do it more and more and more and I think a lot of the impetus of him writing the books he wrote is because he couldn't find he couldn't find the information in one place
1: you know um so
2: did that answer
1: your question? Oh, absolutely. I was okay. just thinking. I think I, I, I could, I could be, I could be wrong on this. I try not to, ever be, but whatever. Um, I, if I, if I'm not incorrect, I do believe Encyclopedia of Magical Herbalism is one of the number one sold, um, pagan or witchcraft based books, on the market because nothing quite like it existed before. I I think about that all the time, the way so many of us and so many books afterward used this book as a reference point to then build spells, to build incense, oils and brews, to build all of these things. If it weren't for the Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, I don't know how many other books may not have been made without the information that was in it. And, And it's so true because to this day, I mean, there are so many books that are all about herbs, but that is still the one so many of us go back to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it was Amy Blackthorne who said that um, information had been provided before, but not in an accessible way, Mm -hmm. which Scott gave. He, he, He wanted it to be easily accessible, easily understood, and Every, and she said, "In every encycl- encyclopedia after that, of, of any kind of thing, follows that form- format. And she mm-hmm. goes, even mine, mine follows that format. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it. I, I don't know the sales figures. I, that's, I don't know where his books stand. All, I do know that all of them are still in print. Not one has gone out of print. And, you know, he's been gone for 30 years. Mm. that's a long time <laughs>
0: yeah. I remember I remember these like <laughs> videos like he had like videos if I remember correctly there were some footage of him I don't know if it was like a like a home video or something like that um like i like a made for um personal Home video viewing and things like that. I don't remember, but I remember he it was him talking about herb magic and yeah, that's herbs. the
2: name of the video actually. And I believe it was put out by the and I'm not uh, sure. I believe uh, it's um, it's been moved to DVD now, so you can still get it, and it's also on YouTube.
1: I did. Oh, I did not oh. even know that. That's so wonderful. Yeah. So, so everyone can have access YouTube. to see him. Yeah. Yeah. So well, thank you for
2: that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I'm curious. Scott confided in you in his teenage years about his interest in divination, and you talked about just recently being at a divination conference. Maybe not recently being at, but being at a divination conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked. I think divination is such a beautiful thing, and I really liked how you talked about how he would divine from anything—clouds, oil and water, fire—and that you mm-hmm. and your family even would sit around. At your your uh at the uh, camping grounds that in your cabin you would go to, you'd sit around the fire, and there was just something. There was a passage in in the book where your mom asks you, "What do you see?" And you would go around and talk about what you would see in the flames, and that is mm-hmm. something that is one just so witchy. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it really witchy, is. and it's it's an extremely pervasive and popular form of of divination. And, um, can you tell us more in our listeners about those experiences?
2: I think fire is a very, um, uh, primitive, um, element. And it's something that as a family, we, you know, my dad was teaching us how to build fires when we were really little and, um, to this day, I don't like anyone getting between me and my fire, (laughs) but, uh, it's, it's a different version of what do you see in the clouds? Basically. Um, it's just harder to come by and because, you know, we don't have fires every day and, and, uh, when you're outdoors, when you're camping, um, or when you're, and this was usually when we were camping, not not at the cabin. I don't don't remember an outdoor campfire at the cabin, which is really too bad. We should have had one. Um,
1: That may have been one of the road trip. I think you were talking about at one point.
2: Yeah. One of the road trips. Um, It's, you know, when you're, you've eaten dinner, you've, you've had as many burnt marshmallows that you can stand. And then you're just sort of and cozy and gathered around the fire and and you know it's just really easy to slip into that um mental imagery dreamy state without much difficulty I mean, we never i mean i just um came back from temple fest with christopher penzac and did, did some fire scrying there and she took us through a process hawkeye took us through a process um and because it was raining and I was cold, I needed that process to, to actually get into the flames and to see what I could see. But when I was little, um, you know, around the campfire, I didn't need that process. It just sort of happened. And I don't know if it's because, um, it, it, it just seemed so natural that nobody was really making a big deal of it, that the, oh, witchcraft, you know, none of us said anything like that. Um, it, it was just normal. Uh, I think that's probably why it was so easy, um, but it was great, <laughs> loved it, loved it. Don't do enough of it.
1: You write also in the in your book about a very specific Samhain tradition uh, at least in chapter 5 i think you were talking about um the medallions at one point that ultimately became a tradition or something that became <clears throat> a tradition for you can you tell our audience a little bit about how this came about and and what you what you like to do now if you'd like to share
2: sure um so uh, this is something that's not in the book oh. do you remember those um those you might not you're probably too young there is this this creature maker that you could make um with like um
1: creepy crawlers like,
2: creepy crawlers creepy yeah like, that, that,
1: crawlers. like,
2: like the, the rubbery <laughs> the rubbery stuff i made it a was lot the of boy flowers. version of
1: like uh uh almost like a you get the girls, the, what's it? The mini bake oven and you get the boys, the creepy crawler baker thing. <laughs> I
0: remember the, it was like, this, it came out as like a liquid rubber stuff and it would pour into yeah. it. Yeah. yeah and yeah, then okay.
2: you bake it mm-hmm. or you, you heat it up in this, this thing. Well, they also had plates for flowers and stuff like that. Anyway. So it kind of was born out of that, that, that was our younger years. And then Scott started taking uh, candles and they were all in color, which were hard to find. So, you know, you have a solid blue candle, not a blue candle, not a white candle with a blue wrapping around it. It was solid blue. And he would drip candle candle wax into a pot of water and make medallions. And, you know, he'd do an S and he covered all up. And so he'd have an S on the other side and, and there were little bumps and ridges and all different color. It was just, it's kind of fun to do. And so we were doing that one day and, um, I don't know, made five or I made five or six and he made several too. And I don't know what he did with his. Um, I think I had mine on the edge of my, um, of my bookshelves in my bedroom until i moved and then i just packed them all up very carefully and and they moved with me until i got to the house i'm in now we've been in this house for almost you know 28 years we've been here for a long time so when i found them like 2003 2004 2005 i went oh i you know that they were colorless they were dusty i didn't want to throw them away um so I waited until Salen and added them to the fire that I had going outside after all the trick-or-treaters were gone because you know you have to be there for the trick-or-treaters. And um, just sort of put them in the fire and started talking to Scott and, and uh, so while I don't have any, oh, they're horrible fire starters. <laughs> they, they do not start fires well at all, but they do burn once the fire is going, which is great. Um, so I don't have any of those. I haven't made any in a long time. Um, but I still try to have a a fire every cell and, and chat with Scott, though he's around all the time now. (laughs) So that's kind of cool.
1: I think a lot of times when we hear the word necromancy, it can be, it can, it can carry a weight with it that doesn't always, it doesn't always have to be that intense. And the concept of taking a that's connected to someone special and then putting into the flames on such a special and specific night like Samhain, uh, a time of year that's really about celebrating and and having a space for the dead to have presence with you. And kind of taking it out of this material world into what we sometimes call the other world, no longer here and there. That's what burnt offerings in my mind have always been. And just sitting down and having a conversation. I think that's something that gets under discussed. And there's a really, really great, I I was reading this, and it made me think about how I may want to spend my Samhain this year, how I may want to, um, at the stroke of midnight, even, uh, maybe I want to plan something that I would like to not just to honor, but to have a conversation with. And it made me think a lot about how I can build my own very specific ritual to talk to family members who have passed to people who were very important to me in my life. I have an ancestor altar and I have to admit, it gets dusty. It's not, so, you know, it's one of those things where I'm not always as vigilant. But you know, maybe if that's something I can't keep up with, this ritual inspired me to do something with, with one of my close friends this coming year. So um I was really excited to hear about that.
2: Cool. Yeah. There's a lot of um ancestral things coming out right now. Like Nancy Hendrickson has her Ancestral Tarot, um <clears throat> Ancestral Grimoire. <grammar. clears throat> uh, Carrie Paris and Teen Hart just came out with something. Um uh, the beloved dead uh, oracle. Uh there are a lot of ways if you if you aren't comfortable or or don't understand how. There are a lot of things out there to help you contact your ancestors and to talk to them. Um, I just recently heard a podcast between Amy Blackthorn and Mortellis that is like two and a half hours of them just talking, and it was so cool. Um, and and I think you're right; necromancy gets a bad rap. Uh, it's it's you can't have the dark. You can't have the light without the dark. Um, and there's not an inherent goodness in light and there's not an inherent badness in dark. It's, it's a matter of balance. There's a lot of people shining brightly who are rotten to the core, you know, and there are a lot of people hiding who have nothing but good things to do and are doing them. So I've learned, um, nothing is black and white there are so many different shades of gray
0: in your book you talk about living with scott and how he was a very private person in one part you write how a friend asked you if he was a private person or if he had to be one um and marshall and i can empathize as as uh that privacy that kind of sometimes comes inherently with living in a conservative southern environment um how do you think, uh, how do you feel about that?
2: Uh, he was both, he, he was private and he had to be private. Um, he, growing up gay in the seventies, uh, in, in one respect, the hippie sixties had, had still was still gaining movement in the seventies. Um, in another respect, he was not only gay, he was a witch. So that was he was in the gay closet and the broom closet. Uh, you you learn to be careful. You learn to be careful, and um, so yeah, he didn't he didn't commingle his friends because you you learn to be careful. Uh, we grew up in the Methodist Church, and, and as far as I'm concerned, the Methodist Church. I know things are different now, but when I was little, it was all kids and potlucks and family oriented and taking care of each other and and that's what the methodist church was when i was growing up it's not from what i understand it's not quite that way now but um so but still scott didn't mingle his church friends with his witch friends which with his school friends with his you know with his writing friends it just it didn't happen mm-hmm. um and i and i think that was him being very careful.
1: I remember reading that very specific part of the book. And I wrote this question because it, it it stood out to me as a moment where you talked about your realization of the difference between was a private versus had to be private. And that's one of those things where so many times... I have revealed to close friends and, 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 and family about instances they didn't know about where I had to lie about myself, mm-hmm. where I had to do something that would literally possibly save my life. Um, I have had memories of being like driving to my father's lease with the family. We stop at the gas station slash grocery store slash restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, Stookies. yeah you know, and, and, we're kind of finished, and I go out to the car to kind of get something. And a couple of older, like older teenage guys, they see me and they like corner me, and I have to get in my car and they're asking me, "Are you gay? Are you gay?" And they're using like much more salacious words. and mm-hmm. i'm I'm no, no, because even at that point in time, I was out to my family. But it was a moment that I realized my safety is in deep jeopardy, and I had to be more private. Um, I had several instances when I was in a school age where I was bullied because I was openly practicing witchcraft Um, and not just bullied, but like got to the point where parents were calling in concerned uh, uh, concerned with their kids in school, concerned with what was going on in school. And they, instead of bringing in these kids that were bullying or causing trouble, they brought me in. And I was the one that was told, (laughs) that was basically told, uh, uh, you need to make this stop. And it was one of those things where I, I started to realize the adults in my life are not going to protect me from this. And this is something that I have to do. And I had to learn very early on. I cannot be as open and honest and public about who I am in this environment just because it's not safe. And I do think that there are, are a lot of people who may have, um, the privilege of not having to face that at such a young age okay. that was it was such a standout it was a small little section of the book but it stood out to me as as a queer man which in Texas so much and I feel like that's a realization that a lot of people don't have
2: yeah yeah we um San Diego which is where we I grew up I was born I was born there um is a navy town so not only are there active Navy people there, but there are retired Navy there. Um, so it is inherently conservative.
0: Even now, I think there's, you know, for, for me at least personally, there's still a lingering sense of, of division not even a sense of division, a a imposed division that I put on, you know, certain, certain people in my life, certain family members, certain, like, you don't need to know everything. And, you know, it's uh, complicated when you have things like social media now, where anybody could really find out what I do by looking it up. You know, if you went to just my website or, um, you know, but there are people you know I have in my family, not because I don't like them, um, but I just have them blocked. You know, on on certain platforms of social media, uh, and again, it's not even because um, I dislike them or they're inherently problematic, but because you they don't need to know everything about um, a my witchcraft practice, uh, which clearly is a big part of my life. Um, and I don't hide it from them in in any way shape or form but I think that division that imposed division also grants a sense of like perhaps don't add, you know if you want to know I guess you can ask a question but I'm not going to lie to you and that might make might, might not like the answer that comes out of that so yeah, yeah. I understand um or at least can empathize with in in to a certain degree about
1: about that privacy. I had a situation, I'm a hairstylist by trade, by day, <laughs> my day job, um, I was up in the salon. I, I had like a break between guests and I was just up front kind of like sitting in one of the chairs, I don't know, just probably just grazing through TikToks, just mindless. And a girl comes up to me, she was a client that she was there for the first time or her mother was and she was coming to meet her. She comes up to and she goes, you look familiar hello. Oh, hi. (laughs) She goes, are you on TikTok? And I was like, I am. And she goes, do you do witchy stuff? And I was just kind of like, I I do. And she goes, oh my God, your video on moon water taught me how to make it. And I was just like, oh, that's, that's so cool. And she wanted to get a picture and it was really nice, but it was one of those Mm -hmm. things where two worlds were colliding in a space that I was lucky enough. I am lucky enough where it's safe and it's not going to be a problem. I could absolutely see how that's not going to be everyone's experience.
0: Mm.
1: That's not everyone's experience. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. In uh, your book, you talk about the importance of having grief rituals um, to process loss. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that.
2: I've lost a lot of people in my life. Um, I've actually done a workshop on this or, yeah you know, every every loss and, and i'll i'll get to the importance of grief in a minute but every loss has taught me something um i mean from my first sweet kiss at 17 16 on the beach that mark um 3 years later was hit by a car uh, uh he was riding a bicycle and he, with a whole bunch of friends and they were all in front of him. He was kind of riding back to safety, I guess, the safety person. Um And a drunk driver had him at 1030 in the morning on a Saturday morning and he didn't make it. And the grief rituals of the Catholic church, I think they were Catholic, if not Episcopalian, which is almost the same thing.
1: thats diet Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I grew up as when I was younger. Um, right. Yeah.
2: Um, the grief rituals really helped the family. Um, they had someone to go to who walked them through the process, who walked them, who helped them with the the non-religious stuff as well as the religious stuff. And when you don't have that, like the second death that really impacted me was my cousin Lori. Uh, you can actually look this up online i found the articles about it um she was in a tavern up in oregon and it was ladies night it was a thursday night it was ladies night she's going to school but she was with her buddies and there was shooting pool in the back room and she goes uh uh, it was her turn to buy the beer so she went up to the bar to get a couple pictures of beer for everybody and and um a white guy with a gun came in and started shooting. And she was one of four, five people killed and there were like 25 to 30 people wounded um, before they managed to stop him. Um, My uncle Kenny was a World War II prisoner of war. Um, He got captured on Wake Island and was a prisoner for four and a half years and when his only daughter got taken from him uh he shut down he said nope no service nothing nothing just no just no um and that was really hard in the family because i hadn't i mean she was 20 or 21 um we hadn't seen each other since we were in our early teens, but still she's my cousin. Um, and, and I didn't, I still don't know what to do with that grief. I'm still processing that, that grief, but it wasn't a deep love. It was a, it was a familial connection. And it was someone I thought we would always have. And, and to have that taken away uh, was shocking. But when Scott died, my dad kind of fell into the same thing that uncle Kenny did. He's like, no, no service. Scott would not want a service. Well, maybe not in the Methodist church, but you know, it would have been nice to have something at the house. Um, mm-hmm. but he said no. And to Tracy Regula, there were two services that I weren't, was not told about to Tracy regular held one at her home for the pagan community. And then there, there was another one a couple days later. And my parents went to the one at Tracy's house, but they didn't tell Greg or I about it. We would have gone. We so would have gone, but we weren't told. So um, I think one of the lines in the book is love demands grief because it is, it is the price you pay for loving when you lose that person. And um, there's no getting around it. It happens, grief happens. And having some way to deal with it when it swamps you is really important. And I'm I'm still searching. I I have some things I do, but I'm still searching for the right thing. (laughs) And it doesn't always appear. We were on our way down to San Diego. I was pregnant with my second child. I was very seven months pregnant with my seventh child and we were going to scatter Scott's ashes at the cabin. We stopped at, at uh San Onofre and picked up three balloons and went out to the beach. And It was me and my husband and our two and a half year old. And we just, you know, said a few words and let the balloons go. Now, not the most environmentally safe thing to do and I wouldn't do it again but at the time it was what we had and it seemed to make sense and uh, it it helped and scattering the ashes helped. I don't know why but uh, for a while there after every um, well after we scattered the ashes we had Kentucky Fried Chicken don't ask me why. I think my mom didn't want to cook or something and when we went up for my grandfather's memorial service, afterwards, we had Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> when my grandmother passed away, we went up for her service, Kentucky Fried Chicken. So <laughs> I think that was the last time I had Kentucky Fried Chicken was up there, um, which is its own kind of um, grief ritual in and of itself. So it can be anything. It's just, it's, it doesn't matter. As long as it matters to you and and speaks to you and your grief, um, I think that's the most important thing.
1: I think there are so many times that we sometimes forget that when it comes to things like funerals, as much as we would like to always believe, they're for the person who's no longer with us. They're for us. Yeah. They're for us to process that experience, that grief. When you said, "Grief is the price you pay for love," I have never heard something so wise that is such an amazing and truthful thing to say because i think any of us who've ever experienced that level of loss the amount that you grieve is a perfect ratio to the amount that you love that person and when i was reading about the importance and and thinking about how I almost didn't go to a funeral at one point because I was afraid of so many things at the time yeah. and so 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 glad that I did. Um, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have that opportunity to have something to grieve with and yeah I really kind of I really like that Kentucky Fried Chicken is the nice <laughs> little like top. Like this is Sicily, my best friend and Kevin and I, we work at the same company. And every single time we only have like maybe one or two company meetings a year that we have to like have to be at. And on the way home, we always drive together and we stop at Cheesecake Factory on the way home. And it's just it it was never on purpose. It's just how it always ended up happening. And now it's something we actually like look forward to. And I'm not comparing company-wide meetings. To a funeral no, but
2: but, <laughs> but it's but it's a ritual it is a ritual and, and it's what i've created you, yeah yeah and if you ever lose that person i'm sure you'll go to cheesecake factory in their honor
1: i will I'll go to a lot of places in their honor for sure <laughs> there was a part that really stood out to me um and i've i've sent you the question so i feel i hope this is okay asking you talk about having felt scott's presence several times after his passing would you be open to sharing some of those experiences
2: Sure. Um, The most dramatic, (laughs) the most dramatic one was when I had gone down uh, with my family to San Diego the day before we scattered Scotch Hashes. I was taking a nap and everybody else was in the living room. I was exhausted. It was one of those, um, I didn't have morning sickness. I had you look at something wrong and you get sick type of sickness. And, um, so I was really, really tired and I was napping and in, in Scott's bed, in the bed he died in. Okay. Um, and it was, it had an iron bedstead and he had, a, um, uh, a, a hagstone that, ha- was attached to the, to the bedstead through, um, a braid, um, not braid, a crocheted, um string that he had tied he had, you know you can hand crochet stuff like that and it was tied to the bedstead and I was just you know kind of dozing and the summer in San Diego you've got the you get a breeze every now and then and their palm banana tree my dad had a banana tree in the backyard and when the breeze hit the banana trees just right they'd wrestle a little bit you know and then you had the the the, I don't know, just the, sit, the, the scent of the garden coming in through the window. So I was just dozing and just relaxing, and and all of a sudden the bed started shaking, and the the stone was clanging against the iron bedstead. And I just like, oh crap, earthquake! Because they do happen in San Diego, not very yeah. often, but they do. And I clutched the clutched the sides of the bed and just sort of just sort of waited it out and and um nothing else in the room was moving just the bed and so the books were fine on the bookshelf and i'm like and i walk out and everyone's looking at me kind of funny and i said do we have an earthquake i don't know are you sure yeah no we didn't have an earthquake like i didn't tell anybody because it, you know, it was it's kind of silly but i went okay Scott was saying, hi, <laughs> he's saying, everything's okay. Legs, you got it. You know, you're going to be fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Um, that, that was the most dramatic. Uh, and then the next time he talked, he talked to me the next time. And I was, I had 90% of the book done and, and I was getting nervous about um, other people reading it. And judging me, and uh, you know, judging the family, and because of course I didn't think anything positive was going to come of it. I thought, you know, I was going to get all this negativity. And um, so I I said something in the preface like, um, now that the time has come for you know to put this out in the world, I I'm I'm kind of I'm hesitant to do so, and and I could have sworn Scott was standing by my right shoulder saying just get on with it already. Just get on with it. And so I put that in the book. And, and ever since then, we've been talking and for a long time, I thought it was, you know, I'm, I'm making this up. He's not really answering me. And (laughs) he goes, I'll shut up. (laughs) (laughs) um, And, and, A lot of times no that really was the snarky scott coming through and yeah he really is he really is talking to me and you know i'm sure he's got a lot of other people he talks to and 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 uh and mentors um i i know that he wasn't ready to go that he had more books to write he was unhappy about that very unhappy about that so it doesn't surprise me that he's sticking around helping people as much as he can because that's who he was. That is who he was. So yeah, he's still here. I'm I'm closer to him now than I was
1: when he passed, which is nice. I was reading that part and I it made me think very specifically of a of an instance that happened to me. I um I had a friend who passed away when I was in my early twenties. I was 20 years old. He was 21. Um, I was the one who found him and had to call the police and had to deal with all sorts of extremely traumatic things that came from that. And I remember it was exactly a year later on the very day that he died. I didn't realize it until the next day. I had a dream. I don't, the, the setting of the dream was very uh, um, unimportant. I don't remember much of that, but I, it was strange. I was in the middle of a dream and then completely separate from what was happening. Bradley, that's what, that, that was his name, he just popped up in it and it, it was his face and it was like, we were in our own space. And I was just like, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm just here to say hi. And I don't have any vivid memories around what happened rest, but I do have this extremely innate feeling that we, we got to spend time with each other, even if it was in my dreams. And it was on the very, very date of the anniversary of his passing. And when I woke up, I felt like my friend had visited me. And I had gone a whole year without having that opportunity to see my friend, um, especially after the way that it happened. And it was just one of those situations that I could could breathe again that I didn't realize I had been holding my breath for so long.
2: Yeah. And I
1: think, um, those are such impactful moments to us. They help us move forward sometimes made me think a lot about how you knew he was behind you saying, just do it already. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, it's a reassurance. You're okay. I'm okay. We are okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I, I, absolutely believe he Bradley visited you um sometimes dreams are the easiest way for the our loved ones to come back to us um i've only seen my mother once in a dream and she was in the dream she was a better version of herself she did not look like the woman i knew but i knew she was my mother and she knew I was her daughter, and uh, we didn't get a lot of time together. But she told me she loved me, and she was proud of me, and she stroked my hair, and she hugged me, and um, and that was within the last three years. Um, every now and then, I'll I'll wake up, and I'll hear my dad's my dad. Um, back when you didn't know who was calling you on the phone, he'd pick up the, he'd answer the phone and say, good afternoon. (laughs) So, uh, every now and then I, I, just before I wake up, I'll hear him say, good afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but other than that, yeah, they don't, they don't come through very often.
1: So lastly, before we finish out today, um, I wanted to ask. Reading your book, it really helped me feel like, as I told you, I got to know Scott on a deeper level. I got to know you on a deeper level. Your experience and memories really spoke about your life and 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 the soul of your family. In your final section, you talk about the person Scott would be today if he were here, Can you share your vision of him in the present with us and our audience.
2: Oh. Well, I'm not exactly, I don't exactly remember what I said in the book, but I can (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Um, He would be, he would be all over social media in a good way because uh, he would be able to be. Um, I like to think he would have found a life partner. That's the one thing that really guts me that he didn't get that unswerving love and devotion from somebody. Um, you know, every time I see a gay man married, it just, my heart explodes with joy. <laughs> it just makes me so happy. Um, and and so I, I like to think that he would be in a solid stable relationship. He would be teaching, he would be uh, doing the festival circuit. Well, I don't know, he'd be 67. He'd be slowing down on the festival circuit. He'd still be writing books. Um, like I said, I, I think he'd probably get that Mesopotamian book out. Uh, I hope he would go down the uh, African diaspora book um, idea because I think that that would be really cool. Um, he'd be on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I kind of think he'd be very similar to what Selena Fox does you know, Uh. her, her, her rituals. And, and, you know, he would have someone, the, the parts that aren't obviously closed tradition. Um, And I don't know if he would be in anyone. I like to think he'd be, you know, he, he join a fairy tradition just to see what it was like. And he would join a different tradition just to see what they were like, you know, um, uh, maybe dip into, uh, heathenism and, um, the Norse gods I don't I don't know but I I like to think he would be very active
0: I think he would be yeah I think that's a really good vision of him and after this conversation and your book I I hope that it I always thought of Scott Cunningham as somebody who is and maybe it's just because of the times the publishing the The lack of, I mean, you know, it was 80s and 90s paganism. It wasn't like, you know, TikTok, witchcraft, what it is today. So not everything was so public, so out in the open. But I always found him to be a person who was quite wrapped up in a lot of mystery. Who is this man? How did he get here? How is he, you know, all of these things. And after all of this, it seems, you know, we got to know you, your family. And peek behind that Oz curtain a little bit. Um, which I think is, for me personally, that's always the most fascinating part of of it all. I love the theatrics. I love the superficial. I love, not saying he was, I like the drama of it all, but my interest the most, I think, in people, which is why I'm so happy that you're here today, um, is to get to know them the reality of them a little deeper. Um, and I think that's that's where, for me personally, that's where the most interesting thing is, is the reality of a person. So thank yeah. you.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my pleasure. I, I really wanted to have the definitive book on Scott, um, which is also why so many contributors are involved. And I know there are people out there that knew him um, on one level or another, but they're not writing books, um, that I know of. And it just seemed, I I couldn't have written it before now, before when I started. Um, but I'm really glad I did. And I'm really glad that it's being received so well. Um, I was nervous. (laughs)
1: It's always nerve-wracking to put your heart and soul on paper and then ex- and then just send it out in the world and hope for the best. Yeah,
2: it is nerve-wracking.
1: Especially about something so close to your heart. This is your family. Yeah. yeah. I'm so grateful for you being here today. This has been reading your book. I hate saying the word emotional roller coaster because that sounds that sounds like a bad thing, but it's a wonderful thing yeah. because it feels so real, and it gives me so much more to think about and and collect and and uh, keep in mind when I read Scott's work. Um, it makes me feel like I can see the person a little bit more behind the words themselves. And I don't think I could have done that without the path taken. So thank you so much for being here. It means the world to not just to us as a community. It means it means the world to me. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Austin. This has been great.
1: You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of crooked ways. I am Marshall. You can find me on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok at Witch of Southern Light. Please check the link trees and all of my bios for lots of free resources, as well as all my platforms where you can buy my book, Cunning Words, uh, A Grimoire of Tales and Magic. Uh, you can also see my Etsy shop, as well as my Redbubble shop for my artwork. Um, and I do believe. I have, I think this is, I know this is coming out before then. I do believe I have a book signing coming up on November 4th, maybe. I think it's on November 4th in Houston, Texas.
0: And I'm Austin Bramble on Instagram. You can shop my womanly wares at BainXBramble.com, including uh, perfumes, uh, ritual materia, and uh, other such objects. Christine, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, I just wanted to ask where people can find you, uh, your books, your work. Uh, The book is uh, officially out now, I believe, or is... Okay, perfect. Well, it will be at the time of of this. So anyways, but yeah, can you tell people where uh, we can find you?
2: Absolutely. You can find me. My romance website is uh, christine-ashworth.com. And my mystical side that I'm still getting up and running is um, mysticalmagic.me.
0: Southern Bramble is a Patreon supported podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters by name, which Rafa, V, Tracy, Timothy, The Witch of Patapsco Forest, The Modern Babylon, The Lady Ghost, Shanna, Nico, Lisa, Keith, Key, Johnny, John, Jens, Jennifer, Jennifer Squared, Jason, Jamisa, Giles, Colby, Cindy, Callie, Ariella, and Adity. Thank you all so much.